0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Anna Lindner, and today we're going to be talking to Dr. Kayama Glover, who is the author of A Regarded Self. Kayama, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast today. It is a pleasure. I'm
2: looking forward to our conversation.
1: Definitely. Um, So Dr. Glover's research and teaching um, includes francophone literature, particularly that of Haiti and the French Antilles, colonialism and post-colonialism, and sub-Saharan francophone African cinema. She is the author of A Regarded Self, Caribbean Womanhood and the Ethics of Disorderly Being, which is the book we'll be discussing today. And she has also published articles in the French Review, Small Acts, Research in African Literatures, the Journal of Postcolonial Writings, and the Journal of Haitian Studies. And she's also co edited works including New Narratives of Haiti for Transition Magazine, Translating the Caribbean for Small Acts, Marie Ville Chateau, Paradoxes of the Postcolonial Feminine for Yale French Studies, The Haiti Exception, and The Haiti Reader. She is the the founding co-editor of Archipelagos, a journal of Caribbean digital praxis, and the co-host of Writing Home, American Voices from the Caribbean. Finally, she has done significant French-English translation work. Um, So to start off, just wanted to talk briefly about uh, you, kind of where you grew up, uh, where you got most of your schooling, informal or formal, and how you think that shaped the writing of this book?
2: Oh, wow. That is a question I did not expect, but sure, I'll give it a shot. Um, so I am from the New York area. I grew up in Westchester County and from there went to uh, undergraduate uh, at Harvard in Cambridge and was majoring there in African-American studies and in French history and literature. These were two separate concentrations that um, when I came to my senior year in college, I realized I wanted to, rather than doing a thesis on one or the other, I wanted to try to figure out something that would bring the two together. My thesis director at the time was... uh, person named Henry Louis Gates Jr., who obviously is a a leading light in Mm African-American studies and who said to me, you know, one way you might do this is to do a thesis on Josephine Baker. And I was like, oh, all right, that sounds interesting enough. And I had um, realized that there was a collection of press reviews of her shows when she first came to Paris in the 1920s. And that I could go over to Paris and do some research. And so that's what I did. And once I got to Paris and sort of started digging around a little bit into like the reality of what black black France was at the time that I was there, but also in the time that she was coming up, um, there were some things that kind of, I'd say, nuanced my understanding of what France was and made me far more interested in um, sort of the French colonial empire and the racial dynamics that escaped the idea of France as the land of liberty and welcome for people of color that I had kind of gone into college thinking that it was. Um, and this uh, we're, we're gonna land somewhere, I promise you. It's a kind of twisting story Part of my research, I, just, I had discovered that at one point in 1931, Josephine Baker was named Queen of the Colonies for that, that year's colonial exhibition. And of course, that was absurd because she was from St. Louis, Missouri, not from a French colonial state. Um, and the surrealist artists kind of made a big deal out of this and pointed to the problems with colonialism more broadly. And so from that kind of like stepping stone of Josephine Baker, I started becoming interested in the Surrealists, who I then discovered spent a great deal of time in the French-speaking Caribbean during the Second World War, as they were fleeing the Nazi occupation and the Vichy government. Uh, So kind of following, so I had followed Josephine Baker across the Atlantic to France. I then followed the Surrealists back across the Atlantic from France into the Caribbean and discovered that... Uh, One among them, the most famous among them, André Breton, had been in Haiti in the mid-1940s. And in fact, it had a hand in what turned out to be a revolution in 1946. And I was fascinated um, by this moment in time in particular, by the fact that in this small nation state that had escaped the grip of uh, France's colonial empire, that it had managed in that in that place to bring together the ideas of poetry that were part of surrealism and a revolution that were part of avant-garde art and literature, but also part of Haiti's history to create an actual political moment. And I really kind of never looked back after that. I was like, why would I go back and study France? I'm much more interested in sort of the dynamic Phenomena of resistance through art, through literature, through culture, through violence, of course, as well, um, in the Francophone Americas in particular, and then in the wider French Empire. So that kind of set me on a course from AFAM and French to Francophone, uh, which is not exactly a mix of the two, but in a, but a but a, um, I don't know, a sort of an out an outgrowth of those two interests. Um, But that doesn't get us to this book, because this book is not just francophone, it's also anglophone. It's Caribbean, broadly speaking, um, in those two major linguistic traditions. And there, you know, my earlier work and my first first book, I really somewhat narrowly, though it's an expansive country, but somewhat narrowly focused on Haiti. Um, And also, I would say on uh, male authors, because I was interested in a particular literary movement that was Really enacted by male authors, um, and so I turned my gaze, I suppose, in this putting together the second project to um, to thinking about less about authorship and more about characters in in novels, and specifically about feminine characters. Um, I discovered some of these characters, you know, as early as in graduate school, and always and realized that I had always been taken by them, and I kept coming back to them for some reason, and. I realized that if I kept coming back to them out of some sort of curiosity or some other affective reason, I wanted to explore it from an intellectual perspective and see all right, what are these, these women that are in these books have in common that makes me think about them think about them as exemplars or troublemakers or provocateurs that make me um, want to do some real intellectual work around them. And so that's kind of how I got to a regarded self. A uh, bunch of characters that I, I kind of love hated, and wanting to figure out what makes them tick. Right. Which yeah. Long winded answer, but you asked a big question.
1: <laughs> yeah. No. I love I love getting the background information about people uh, who write and kind of why and how they write. So that's great. Um, and transitioning actually into my next question that does fit with what you were just talking about. Your book is a series of case studies about African descended women whose personal behavior and actions don't really quite fit into the conventional frames of African-American cultural feminist studies, uh, as you put it. Um, Could you explain a little bit why that is and why you decided to amplify these stories kind of because of, maybe not even despite, um, the fact that it doesn't fit into that frame?
2: Yeah, so um, I, I'll make one slight nuance. So there's five women characters, one of whom I, I think, you know, what was important to me to understand and how I put together my corpus was, right, what do these women have in common? And um, and, I'm, and this is kind of querying this idea that they're all Afro-descendant. One of them is not. She's actually a French woman, um, but who was born and raised in Haiti. And so I think just in terms of the characters, just to say that my guiding um, light were women that the, 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 they're not fitting in, began with their very personhood. So each one of them is so-called mixed race. So neither from one or another strict, uh, "Quote unquote" bloodline or racial identity, um, and also culturally mixed, and then also in in many cases geographically displaced. Like their story, first in some instances, take place takes place outside of the place where they were born or where their family's from, etc. So, um, in terms of their identity, um, but why I wanted to the question was why I wanted to talk about these women in particular? Yeah, it was. It's what you hinted out, which was because I found them not only to be troublemakers with respect to kind of what I think of as the usual subjects like the patriarchy or the white triarchy or white supremacy, but the ways in which they shone a light on progressive communities or communities that we're used to understanding as being quote unquote morally good um, and thinking about how the fact of their not fitting in signals um, what I would think of as really an imperative to be wary and vigilant to the kinds of borders and exclusions we can establish even amongst the most well-meaning communities. And so I saw them as these kinds of almost canaries in a coal mine that would suggest to us or suggest to a reader what the limitations or constraints are even in those communities we take for granted as being righteous or good. So feminist communities or anti-racist communities or anti-colonial communities, et cetera. I was interested in seeing how their provocations uh, held up a mirror to even the most well-meaning and well-minded um, readers and communities
1: yeah um, and going back to yeah the beginning of my question the beginning of your answer too um, I forgot about Kateriana the the white Creole Creole um, you know Haitian but she is white she is European um, descended and she's living in Haiti and she is Haitian, but, um, yes, she is not African descended. And that is, uh, kind of an important, you know, conflation to correct because <laughs> it does tie into my own work, which is interested in whiteness in the Caribbean. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, yes. so, um, yes, I should, uh, keep an eye to that because, um, that is an issue that, I, I'm interested in and as well in the United States, you know, if we're as you rightly point out in your book, the United States kind of does overdetermine a lot of the scholarly conversations, which is an issue. Um, and our understandings of the rest of the world and the you know, the Caribbean in particular, which is a confusing area for when it comes to US. Yeah. yeah, for US, like North American, US, particularly white US Americans, they're just like, wait, what? Um, and they would not think about Hadriana, for example, as uh, white, but she is. Um, so yes, that is a great correction there. Um, and speaking about that, that transitions to my next question, which is, could you talk us through kind of um, the book's alignment with, but also departure from Caribbean theory and then also just general ways of not knowing that have historically dominated Caribbean scholarship in terms of a scholarship that's both about and in the Caribbean specifically?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think there are a number of what we could think of as Caribbean epistemologies that run through all of these works. And they're not all, you know, they don't all exist in some sort of relationship of absolute contrarian or contestatory you know, identity or what have you. They're not um, radically opposed to the kind of literary tradition that's been established. But as I said, they provoke and they poke at, they prod and they nuance that tradition. Um, And some of the ways, you know, really have to do with formulations of the communal and um, understandings of uh, the Caribbean, I would say, in some ways as existing in opposition to the individualism of the Euro-North American model of of being in the world, right? So it's not about individuals striving for personal fulfillment, but rather about communities overcoming odds, facing challenges together, coming together to uh, transform the lives of all at one one point, at one time. And I think what I wanted to um, address in this book is the ways in which that kind of notion of... The supremacy of a well-meaning community that's advancing the interests of all um, has some specific blind spots, I guess you could say, when it comes to women and women's lives, women's needs. And and so the characters that I chose to focus on exist in those blind spots. Um, how so? Well, if we're thinking about some of the Caribbean epistemologies being about um to know we could say um, diversified families, so finding kin among those who are not your biological relations, or uh, for example the notion of what's called submarine unity, the notion that um, the different islands, even though they're archipelagic and separated in space, have a unity to them that comes from the common experience of the Middle Passage, Um, or even the notion of opacity and relation which is uh, Edouard Glissant's way of of embracing and thinking about the Caribbean, how that opacity only goes to a limited extent, maybe when it comes to certain kinds of women. And so I was thinking about, all right, well, what do we do with women who are not auxiliaries, are not supporters of husbands or partners, do not raise or do not want to raise children, um, do not identify racially in a way that's concrete or easily understood, even within the context of the so-called mixed race Caribbean, um, thinking about how their Un- discomfort, their uncomfortable fit uh, challenges the surety of some of those epistemologies. Now, that being said, I also use a number of Caribbean epistemologies maybe just in ways that I felt were maybe a little bit pushed a little further than how they'd be, they, been used in the past. One among them would be the example of marronage, which is a really central idea in the Caribbean of um, flight from the plantation environment, the negotiation with that environment in ways that uplift a community of rebels. Um, I looked at individual forms of malinage on the part of women who didn't necessarily flee their geographic confines, but who fled by their behaviors, by their refusals, the constraints of the situations they found themselves in within their communities. Um, yeah, things of, of that nature, I would say. What you could call perhaps petit maronage, um, small acts of maronage that were nonetheless insistent and provocative and, and even dangerous.
1: Yeah, and that ambivalence, and you use that word in the book,
2: I think, is important. Uh, the both-and approach. Well, yeah, I will just point out that's absolutely crucial. I think also the not to. Not to make too bad of a pun, but the black and white nature of much of our thinking around good guys and bad guys, around black and white in the world and in the Caribbean and imperial context more broadly, these women really (laughs) screw with the the certainty, Uh, and so ambivalence is is a term that makes sense when thinking about them. Yeah, definitely,
1: Um, and we see that throughout. Um, You know, without your book being wishy-washy, I think you do a really good job of kind of, you know, undulating between those two. Um, if there are two poles or multiple poles, you know, there might there might not just be two, too. Um, so to kind of get into the specific uh, content chapters, um, the first chapter is about or is uh, about a character created by a Guadalupean or so from the Guadalupe um, colony, French colony, uh, Maris Conde. And she wrote about Tituba. Um, and she is a, um, you know, an enslaved woman. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your discussion of conventional 19th century female slave narratives, which do have a kind of um, formula that they follow generally. Um, and then I want to talk about that in conjunction with, you know, black feminist or womanist kind of frames that you know, now get applied to those 19th century narratives and how her story, again, with the ambivalence, is kind of alignment, but also troubles those assumptions um, through uses of the er erotic. And then also the intertextual relationship with Hawthorne's Hester, which is fascinating, and how those two women are kind of exemplifying different aspects of that kind of expression of well, Hester's not enslaved, obviously, but um, enslavement, women, you know, gender frame.
2: I mean, the way I've thought about tichuba and always think about tichuba as, you know, almost like Mali Conde's scattershot boundary pushing. She's like, there is not a convention. She doesn't want to bust. And the and, and she does that, yes, as a provocation, but I think more um, substantively, almost as permission. Um as as a as a what if like what if these women could have spoken you know pardon the the cheesy formulation but could have spoken their truth in their time what might they have said um, what if they weren't constrained by the conventions of the enslaved woman's narrative as a journey from enslavement to freedom as a journey from paganism to spiritual enlightenment but um, but rather as a as a series of stumbling efforts to survive and to find some joy and to be a complicated being, right? And I think when I read uh, her configuration of Tituba, who from beginning to end, really escapes any of those constraints, even the very fact, you know, I think I probably in the book at some point call her an enslaved woman, but that's almost a mistake, right? Because we have to recognize she, she, she was, she chose servitude ultimately. If you, if you think about what she, she does the opposite of what happens in a, in a slave narrative. She was free. She did exist. And I think I say in the book in a sort of garden of Eden and falls from that garden because of her love of a man. And actually maybe even more, um specifically because of her lust for a man, um, this is th- th- that fits no convention that would, would would make the case for an abolitionist in the 18th century, certainly. Um, the fact too that that Tichuba, in Marie's Conde's telling is a flawed human being, a deeply flawed human being who makes mistakes that are both egregious and frivolous, um, while also being a, a lovable, being, right? So her her vast imperfections and her flaws, but yet this sort of galloping need to be loved that I think escapes the text itself and maybe even interpolates the reader to, t- to some sense, love me. And I think she says at one point, Tichuba wants to be loved. Who loves Tichuba? Tituba wants to be loved. She must be loved. Um, is an appeal, right? I think to Imagine the possibility of humanist love for those who are imperfect and who still merit our support, um, our defense, um, our appreciation, etc. So, uh, when I teach this novel to my students, I'm I'm just like, Tichiba's messy. She's just like that messy friend you have, which you can talk some sense into, um, but who you don't not love for it, you just recognize as being a flawed being that you're there to support. And it sounds a little corny, I think. But at the same time, I think it does some really provocative work in allowing that freedom to a Black woman at a time where nothing about her context suggested she should ever choose herself or her own desires over some sort of bigger picture of you know a, a journey from enslavement to freedom written on someone else's terms. And that, of course, goes even to to Hester, to Hester Prynne. First of all, that, that Conde inserts this character, who was the star of some other book, which everybody has read, right, usurps that sort of power that's implicit in the Hawthorne book and brings it into her own story is an incredibly <laughs> a baller move <laughs> and really kind of adds a dimension, which is in and of, in and of itself. Something of a move adds this humor to a novel about enslavement, which is kind of crazy, right? I mean, we shouldn't probably be laughing uh, at at two women who have been uh, one who has at this point become enslaved, the other of whom has been cast out of society uh, in by the hypocrisies of patriarchy. But it's a funny scene and that Conde makes sure that um, there is some lightness to that encounter that she brings something as weighty as feminism because it's a clearly, it's a it's a, a moratorium on feminism that happens in that scene with Hester Prynne that she nevertheless kind of encases it in this this bubble of humor um, is very provocative and, and allows, I think, as a reader to imagine or to think about, um, you know, feminism itself is as flawed or certain kinds of feminism is flawed, or at least as a perspective that, that merits constant questioning, just as tichuba does, right? So Hester is there in the scene with all these highfalutin ideas and Tichuba's is asking just some basic questions, like, but what if I like men or want to have sex, or even want to be submissive sometimes, or, is, you know, asking questions that are meant to be problematic. um, But that that kind of not Hester a little bit off of her high horse and bring her to a more human level. Um, So yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, And it's fascinating, because now the kind of current discussions of feminist feminism, I think kind of revolve around feminism is whatever women want to do, I think is kind of the the conclusion that a lot of, like, at least mainstream feminists have come to, um, but this you know, is which is
2: 1986. So, you know, well before right. this moment.
1: Yes. Right. And so then we're kind of retroactively looking back and, um, maybe applying that lens to, um, this to a degree, which is interesting right. to me.
2: I mean, not to say it's easy, and I also say this to my students: it doesn't. Just knowing this or thinking this way doesn't mean the character becomes any easier to to love, and you excuse all their flaws. Um, but it's just to recognize. I think what Conde is trying to to do in the process of creating a character who risks being unlikable uh, or or tough to get behind um, makes us maybe confront some of our own expectations and prejudices.
1: Yeah, and and I think that version of feminism, it's whatever women want to do is idealistic and not always lived up to and is constrained. And even if, you know, it's always going to be constrained by political, social, et cetera, realities, which is the contention that we have
2: to continue to deal with. Absolutely. Social realities, political realities of which women are very much a part too, right? So the idea that solidarity um, is necessarily or or entirely attached to gender identity, um, as we constantly see... Is by no means given, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, definitely. Um, and then transitioning to the second chapter, so we have a Haitian Rene Desbetre, um, who writes about a uh, the young white woman we mentioned at the beginning, um, or European descended woman, uh, Hadriana, who, um who is also kind of in that colonial. Um, or post-colonial Haitian moment. Um, and thinking about her story, could you talk a little bit about her community? So the community of Shokmel, Um they have a collective myth about her and her young virginal whiteness um, and the the juxtaposition of that and then Hadriana's individual reality, as you summarize at the end of the chapter, um, in terms of the expectation for those uh, for women's sexuality and for race and for what it means to be a Haitian person, a Haitian woman in this political moment.
2: So um, Depesca's novel is, um, first of all, it, I won't do any spoilers, but it's a, it's a structurally unusual novel. Um, it's, it's one very small story, ultimately, but that's exploded into different directions and then told twice within the same novel from two different perspectives. I'll say that much. And, um, and so as with, you know, even though the two heroines could not be more far apart, Tichuba and Adriana, right? So Adeliana is this European descended, uh, blonde, blue eyed woman, rich woman living in Jacques, this coastal town in Haiti called Jacques Mel. Uh, and and Tichuba is obviously an, an enslaved or a woman in servitude in the, 18th century in in Guadeloupe and in the United States. I'm sorry, Barbados and in the United States. Even though their life paths, if you can say, or their characters are completely different, they both um, have the same ambivalence with respect to their communities and ex- with respect to the expectations of those communities, uh, and also these sort of unusual backgrounds that make them not quite what they seem to be. Um, and in Adriana's case, though she is this white woman from this very high-class French family, she understands herself to be very much Haitian. The problem with that is that her community is really invested in her whiteness, in her um, Frenchness, in her, um, in a sense of her superiority to them actually. And so there's a way in which um, what Depestre seems to be doing in the novel is is taking his own countrymen to task, in a sense, for their fetishization of of whiteness, of their having drunk the Kool-Aid of standards of beauty that have been imposed on them by the former colonial power, right? So the story takes place in 1938 and then again in 1978, but the main action, let's say, takes place in the late 1930s. Haiti has been an independent nation for well over a century, Um, and yet and still, there is this presence of um, a desired whiteness that he really calls out in, in the novel. And it gets called out, especially when we come to realize how much of the community's sense of itself is invested in this being that they're worshiping, essentially because of her European beauty. Um, and And I will say also, he... He kind of puts that European beauty in the frame of Haiti's uh, traditional religious spiritual practices, notably Vaudu, to show how even within Vaudu there is a goddess, Erzuli, fair-skinned, if not white, who is most beloved, who is cherished and spoiled. And there too, what sets her apart is her whiteness. And so there's kind of a, a real questioning of um, the embeddedness of a certain kind of colonial mentality that persists even and well into a post-colonial moment. Um, and the 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 town of Jacquel itself, which is this incredible, it's a yeah, I mean the novel is is really funny and descriptive and, and beautiful, but the way that he Defastler describes this town as is as really ambivalent in and of itself, like struggling with its own desires to be more unbound, more free, more perhaps sexually honest or what have you, but also constrained by a bourgeois code of behavior that means that there's this kind of subcurrent or this tension that exists among all the members of the community. And so that tension gets like dumped onto Adriana. She's meant to sort of maintain this pure core um, at the center of which everything revolves, uh, around which everything revolves. And when um, she is transformed into a zombie, this happens early on, so it's not too big of a spoiler. When she's transformed in a zombie, the community really is left to figure itself out, um, to understand itself, to confront what it's done to her during her lifetime, and um, whether it's able to face that after her false death. Uh, so it's really, um, yeah, a really fascinating tale in that way.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today—that's Shopify.com/slash-system.
1: Yeah, um, and you know, thinking about you know her as almost a figurehead of aspirational whiteness, aspirational Frenchness that is still ex- explicitly coded as as Haitian. Um, and thinking about, you know, how they're going to try to forge their collective community identity kind of with that and of that, but also contrary to that, because that whiteness is aspirational. They know that they cannot obtain it
2: um, is fascinating to me. Right. And what they do to try to obtain it. Right. So the, the the premise of the of the book is that this woman, Adriana, is meant to marry a local Haitian boy, uh, presumably of like an upper class, but it's, it's presumed that he's ethnically Haitian, so a brown or black man. And the whole idea is that when she marries him, the community kind of gets her, but that that's the sum of their realization of themselves is to have her embrace them by by virtue of this marriage. Um, and in as much as that marriage is thwarted by the fact that she turns into a zombie on her wedding day, the community is left completely Deboussolé, as we say, like completely in a state of distress, um, and recognizing how much it relied on her, and coming to terms with what that says ab- about them, um, and this all kind of happens through a central narrator um, who is a little bit of an avatar of Henri de Bèsle himself, who kind of takes the reader through this perception of uh, this woman and what it does to his community,
1: right. Um, and going off of something you just said a minute ago, I maybe I'm too over determined by this, but I'm always thinking about um, Mestizaje in Spanish. I don't know exactly what the rendering is in French. Mes- mestizaje. Yeah. So um, racial and cultural mixing as the process that has created and then, and then cements the identity of the Caribbean Um, and her you know representing that white French creolness a word originally just meaning like not only applied to whites but people who are born in the new world into the Caribbean in the colonies and but sometimes are of European descent maybe fully Um, and then her marrying you know a supposedly mixed race whatever that means um, brown or black little uh, you know actual Haitian, actually, you know, more associated with what we think of as Haiti uh, boy kind of representing that, um, that mixing. um, And what kind of the the force of
2: that is, um, is what always fascinates me. (laughs) Indeed. And Haiti is a particular case where, you know, unlike some of the other Caribbean nations, because it took independence as early, you know, as it did in 1804, and with that process, uh, you know, went a far way to expelling most of the white population. Um, you know, this is a country where, you know, the word for person is neg, is Black person, right? Um, and so the irony, though, that these sort of colorist, if not racialized, you um, conflicts and discomforts are still so persistent into the 20th century is is worth looking at and looking at closely um and for the best who at the time that he wrote this had not lived in haiti since 1958 the novel was published in 1988 and even when he did live in 50 there in 58 he was there only for a year before you know, getting into trouble with the dictator Juvalier's government and having to skedaddle off to Cuba for 20 years. Um, He's writing from a place of true nostalgia to some extent, but also with, I would say, the critical eye that's afforded by distance, Uh, sort of an ability to look back at uh, the Haiti that he knew and what its challenges were in terms of um, crafting an identity that escaped the pressures and the and the horrors of the past, including the the toll that, um, you know, the kind of phenotypic degradation of blackness continues to have in that country. Um, He, from, from where he sat being willing and able to talk about race in Haiti um, I think is particularly interesting.
1: Yeah. And to kind of counter what I said a few minutes ago too, it's, With all of what you just said, in some ways, Haiti is a little bit of a disavowal or a a rejection or pushing back of the kind of mestizaje um, mixing narrative, because like you said, it was more of a explicit reclamation or claiming of blackness. And in some ways it kind of defies, which, you know, obviously normally it goes towards whiteness, but then just so complex and messy and again, aspirational this kind of promise of the Haitian revolution, which so many authors have written about, you know, still falling short because of the um, economic situation that Haiti found itself in because of, you know, colonialism and imperialism. And then the, the very stark economic inequalities along the racial lines that have continued for over 200 years. (laughs) Um, And so then that that promise that is kind of ironic, sadly, bitterly ironic, um, and again, that is seen in this novel as she is, again, the kind of the epitome, and then she's obviously not even African-descended at all. She's white. So, um, yeah, very fascinating. Um, so then let's talk about another Haitian, Marie Chavez.
2: Yeah, Marie um, sure Chavez,
1: yeah, she, so she writes about, uh, Lotus, um, and again, returning to the idea of ambivalence, um, and how Lotus is a frustrating character because she defies categorization in terms of her race, in terms of her kind of position in the nation state. And as a woman in her relation to men and in relation to other people in Haiti, um, how does that ambivalence open you up into a social and political critique in the context of nation-building of Haiti in that era?
2: Yeah, so, you know, for F- F- Fie Daughter of Haiti, um, Marie Chauvet's book from 1954. Um, is that right? Is it 1954? Yeah, 1954. Is really a product of its time um, in a pretty stark way, in as much as you know the main char- her main character. You're right, absolutely ambivalent. So she is a um, on the one hand, she is fair of skin and long of hair, um, and economically um, not rich, but certainly well enough off that she doesn't have a job and lives on her own and supports herself. But at the same time excluded from polite society because her mother was a prostitute and she is likely the product of her mother's relationship with a either a French naval officer or a, an American marine it's it's not uh, entirely clear but her father is is white and um, so she's not part of the Haitian uh, upper class that kind of came up as the upper class, but she is an arriviste. She's someone who, um, even though she has money, it comes from a disreputable source. So she's on the outskirts of the fair-skinned uh, so-called mulatto community, but she's also very much on the outskirts of the uh, urban black let's say proletarian community, because she has a big villa and she doesn't work and she has fair skin and goes to school and all of these things. So um, she's this very lone and lonesome character. And she exists in the context against a historical backdrop that mirrors a period in Haiti, which was the transition from what was known as something of a mulitocracy, so like a fair-skinned so-called, these are all scare quotes, mulatto regime in Haiti, the transition to what would ultimately become what's known as Noirisme, um, which the terrible translation is uh, Blackism, but the understanding of the term is a Black totalitarian state that really reached its highest order under François Duvalier in 1957. So this novel is um, telling the story of this, this woman, Lotus, this ambivalent woman, Lotus, who's caught up in the maelstrom of this rivalry or this, this burgeoning conflict between um, fair-skinned so-called mulatto Elites and the black masses. And because she doesn't fit in, she sees both sides. Uh, I wouldn't say clearly, but she lets us see them like she lets us in her own confusion, in her own ambivalence, in her own suffering. She allows us to see the nature of the political strife that's happening all around her. Um And so in that respect, even though the novel itself, it's not Marie Chauvet's best novel, it's her first novel, so it's, you know, to be fair, um, the story it's telling is ambivalent and really incisive, I think. Um, Lotus, the central character, is not that likable. She's frivolous. She's not that brilliant. She uh, makes a lot of mistakes and... um, and only over the course of the novel comes to even understand herself, right? So we're along for that very, very bumpy ride of her journey of self-discovery and it's not a straight line by any means. Um, but as we go through her mistakes and um, and stupid moves and disappointments and, and actual tragedies, violence that's done to her on multiple occasions, um, we start to get a picture of Uh, of the landscape in Haiti at that time of the same question of the dangers of colorism as attached to classism in a nation that's trying to build itself out from under the shadow of imperialism. And, you know, for me as a contemporary reader, I think a lot of the issues that Lotus allows us to see clearly are still present in Haiti today and are still undermining the possibilities for true sovereignty and um, coherence as a nation state.
1: Those disorderly characters um, doing their disorder, doing their disorder um, for their, you know, own self-actualization or whatever mm-hmm. um, adjective that comes after self. I like,
2: yeah, self-actualization. That's a good one. Um, she's definitely on a journey of self-actualization, and um, she gets there in the end. But it almost—it's such a wrapped-up, neat with a bow ending. I think I write that in the book that it's almost—it's almost a parody. It seems like you know, we kind of fall back into the box of what a man wants a woman to be. Um, and to me, knowing Marie Chauvet's trajectory, her biography as an author, um, I wouldn't be surprised if she meant to to poke fun at the stereotype of what a good Haitian woman is by um, <laughs> by giving the backstory to this, this crazy person who ends up being like a good girl at the end, so. Yeah.
1: Right, right. Um, And then we have um, Jamaica Kincaid, who talks, who puts forth the character of Suela. Um, And so I wanted to talk again, like I just kind of hinted at, the disorderly state of being that characterizes her. And you use Sylvia Winter, so Jamaican Sylvia Winter's uh, demonic grounds and says that Suela goes beyond winter's beyond. so I was wondering if you could theorize that back out for us and how that connects to kind of Zuela's story and her situation and her uh, understanding of the world.
2: Sure. Yeah. Um, well, first I'll confess, because I'm realizing it's true. Um, people have asked me this before, and I've always said, Oh, I love all my characters equally. I will just say it. I love Zuela. She's my faith. She's of all of them. I just, she is the surliest, most uncompromising um, most, (laughs) take me as I am or don't take me one way or another. I think, you know, speaking of aspirations, I think, you know, if I could aspire to that in parts of my life, she'd be my, she's my get. Um, But yeah, so Zuela, um, when I say she goes beyond, winter's beyond, I was referring specifically to a, a kind of foundational essay written by Uh, Sylvia Winter called Beyond Miranda's Meaning, where she sort of theorizes the Tempest narrative and thinks about Miranda as being like the woman left out of the story or um, existing out beyond the frame of this duality between Prospero and and Caliban. And when I think of Zuela as going beyond that beyond, um, I think of Kincaid as being not necessarily interested in White woman who is the point of the triangle that includes Caliban and Prospero. But the thought of a native woman, you know, who's to say Caliban was the only was the only inhabitant of that island? Um, he was just the dum-dum that got caught by Prospero. But what if there were you know, I don't know, I, I always think of Kincaid having imagined Zuela as exceeding the frame of that triangle of two two guys, kind of a father and a lover fight or would be lover fighting for a damsel. Um, but rather this this this, this self-preserving, um, Indigenous being that doesn't want any part of that story <laughs> um, and is an existing in her own, uh, in our, against her own backdrop and in her own landscape. And I really think that Kincaid has offered us that possibility through this character of Zuela, who, who is so fiercely um, uncompromising as to not even understand what's expected of her because she just doesn't compete on those terms. And I find that fascinating. It's like a step further than rebellion, because if you're rebelling, you kind of get like what the status quo is and you say no with respect to that. Zuela's contrariness, her unsettledness, her disorder is, in, is innate to herself. Um, and it seems to me that in the novel, this character that, that Kincaid has given us, um, everything she does is not reactive, but active or passive because she doesn't want to do a thing. Um, and, and her life, and I find you know that, that there is a Tempest, a certain kind of a Tempest narrative built into um, the autobiography biography of my mother, but her life reads to me as a series of experiments in crafting the self. Like my instincts or my desires or my interests tell me to try this, this worked, this didn't work, I'm gonna keep doing this, I'm gonna stop doing that, next. Um, and that sort of utilitarian approach to survival on her own terms, you know, I don't know that there's very many characters out there in the world, either in the real world or in the world of literature. Um, and I think that, uh, that Kincaid is doing her own version of philosophizing by giving us this person.
1: Yeah um as an anxious conflict avoidant uh, person <laughs> I <laughs> I need to be I need to imbibe just a tiny little tiniest bit modicum of what she yeah. of her refusal I mean I just, it's so contrary to just how I am, which is obviously
2: probably. You can't live in the world like that. And that's, isn't that ultimately, I mean, it's not like Kincaid gives us a happy ending by any means, (laughs) you know, Um, she literally makes it such that Zuela does not live in the world. Um, But, and so that's what, I mean, I would say with all of these books, what's hard about them or what's frustrating and hard in a good way about them is that they don't, they don't resolve in terms that you're like, I want that. You know, I, you, you, as a reader, at least this reader and I find with my students as well, it's not like we want to land where Tituba lands because, you know, right. I'm not going to spoil it We don't necessarily want to land uh, where Zuela lands either. certainly not where Lilith lands. And I know we'll get to her later, but it's, it, it's fascinating to me to see through these women's lives the stakes of behaving properly. Like what do you have to give up? How does decency um, mean giving up some part of yourself that you wanna honor more? And Zuela's like, you know what, screw decency, that I am willing to give it up. If I have to be completely alone, which she ultimately does, I would rather be that than compromise these things that my experiments tell me. My experiments with my own soul tell me are the right ways to be in this world. Um, so they're admirable, but not necessarily, you don't want to emulate them in their full being either, right? They keep you in a state of unsettledness that I, I really appreciate.
1: Yeah. Yeah, she definitely does that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the last content chapter is about uh, Lilith, like you mentioned, and and this was written, she was written by Jamaican Marlon James. Yeah. Um. So could you talk to us a little bit about her I'm thinking specifically about her narcissism um, and then potentially connecting that to her ungendering, which is a term you take from spillers, um, and kind of how that, you know, ultimately ties into her, her disorderly sense of self and action in the world? Sure.
2: Um, so... So I think I was going to say like Lilith is a close second for me in in terms of (laughs) the characters I really, I really um, have a thing for just because she's the worst. She's um, an enslaved woman (laughs) and the best. She's an enslaved woman um, who miraculously somehow doesn't let her be herself be defined by her enslavement, which is absurd because she the universe that James has crafted for us, which is claustrophobic constrained, extraordinarily violent and limiting, and is really confined to two plantations, right? There's no more bounded space. And yet Lilith imagines herself fundamentally beyond the context of enslavement. So I think that's one of the most provocative things that James manages to do, um, because he's given us this character who if she weren't an enslaved person would kind of probably just be a bit of a, of a jerk, right? Um, she's not a woman's woman. She's like, right. She's like one of those women that doesn't really like hanging with other women. Um, she is pretty self-absorbed. Um, she's exceedingly vain. Um, and she will do almost anything to get what she wants for herself. These are the qualities that define this woman who has all of those attributes But those attributes are kind of de facto, almost knee-jerk trumped by the fact that she is the ultimate victim because she is an enslaved black woman, right? So there's that super like mind meld that happens when you're recognizing that all of my training, all of my understanding of the world as a woman, as a person of color, as a feminist, as a scholar of um, Mm -hmm. colonialism and enslavement, all of my sympathy should be towards this character. And yet James is making it really tough for me. Why is he doing that? Um, and to me, that's like the central interesting question of this book is, is, as I say in the chapter, sort of a rejection of a redemptive history project. And that's not a frivolous thing. If we think about our inclination or our desire to rescue voices from the past in order to recover them to our present in ways that can be useful to building our future you know there's a there's a a tendency to want them to be wonderful to want them to be deserving of our kindness and our consideration and our love and our affection Um, but that would be ridiculous if every enslaved person was also just like a good person that's just not being a victim doesn't necessarily make you a better human right Um, and so that That James brings us to spend so much time with this somewhat unsympathetic victim of enslavement and to grow to, if not like her, at least understand her. Um, I think that opens the door not only for thinking about how we recover the past, but also thinking about, well, who deserves our empathy, our generosity, our kindness in the present, which is the past of Of our future, right? Um, And when we're in a contemporary moment and thinking about uh, places like Haiti, Haiti and places like it, and who's deserving of our care, our respect, our political will and might, um, we can't also then hold individuals from those places to some sort of standard of wonderfulness uh, in order for them to merit and deserve empathy and and human dignity, and what good treatment, and all of those things. So, I, yeah, that that to me is 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 what's fascinating about spending four hundred pages with a mean enslaved woman. <laughs> um, yeah, the ungendering. I might be misremembering my own book, but I think I was really talking more about ungendering in the chapter around um, Kincaid's book. But if that's wrong, remind me where in when I was talking about Lilith, where I was talking about ungendering, because I'm, I'm sure it'll click. But I remember thinking about ungendering in a very kind of literal... I borrowed from Spillers um, throughout in thinking about intramural conflict and the ways in which all of these authors, instead of positing like evil white people against you know good victimized Black people, show us complicated Black people who are Black and Brown people who are in conflict in their own communities. Um, so Spillers helped me a lot with thinking about about that reality. Um, But in terms of the ungendering, I know I thought about Spillers in the context of Zuela's very literal transformation where um, after uh, a pretty painful and near-death experience of abortion, she cuts off all of her hair, Dresses in men's clothes and actually tries to pass for a man for a time as she heals, um, and that was sort of an ungendering. That yes, the term is borrowed from Spillers, but it was kind of a, a retaking of ungendering as freedom and possibility, um, as escape from from the constraints of being identified as a woman um, and trying to get in, get down to who she was internally as opposed to the external signs that mark her in society. So.
1: Yeah, and I think it was just kind of this moment of um, you bringing in that term, and then, like you said, kind of reordering it, yeah, if you will, <laughs> disordering, <I think. laughs> um, yeah, disordering, reordering, disordering, reordering, maybe in like a cycle,
2: yeah, um, sure. yeah.
1: Um, and I, I just, I seized upon that moment, and I, I thought that was very poignant. So I um, appreciate that kind of. Um, understanding of her I guess um, in her complicated sense of self All right. well thank you so much for coming on today and for talking with us and I look forward to reading your other work in the future
2: thank you so much Anna I really enjoyed this conversation and I really appreciate your uh, taking the time to delve back into the books I miss them I miss working on them so it was lovely to be able to talk to you about them and I hope you'll read some of them uh, as soon as you get a chance Yes,
1: definitely. Thanks
2: so much. My pleasure. Take care.